going on, everybody? Welcome to another week's Live Life Aggressive Show. Sincere Hogan, that's me. Got Mike Mahler on the other line from sunny Las Vegas. I always feel like I'm introducing some chorus line or something like that when I say sunny Las Vegas. Like <laughs> yeah, one day it'll be torrential rain out here. <laughs> He's like, you're lying, Sincere. Try again. <laughs> yeah, man, we have an awesome guest today. I can't wait to talk to this guy. In fact, he's he's actually one of the first guys I interviewed when I first got into the business. One of my strategies to really get my name out there was just to contact people I admire, like Steve Maxwell and our guest today and Charles Poliquin. And this was not only a way to help them get their name out there and deliver some great content, but also to help me network with some of these people. So for those of you out there that are new to any business and you're looking for effective networking means – Avoid nuisance networking. That's when you're bothering people. That's when you're just hitting people up on the street and going, oh, can I pick your brain for a minute? <laughs> or, or you're emailing someone saying, hey, can I get you on the phone for a while? I have some questions. I was like, yeah, I'm sure you do. But people are busy. All right? Right. You have to look into what's in it for them. Lead into exactly. what's in it for them as opposed to what's in it for you because – Busy people don't want to deal with that. But anyway, before we get to him, remind everyone that you can use that coupon code LLA to get 10% off the best nutrition supplements around. My Adrenal Energy Supplement Red continues to sell really well, getting some incredible testimonials for that. The Aggressive Strength Testosterone Booster is on back order. It's completely sold out. It will be back in stock on May 16th. I had a huge plug from Charles Poliquin last week, and that just wiped you out. Proves, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, had enough in, I, I had enough inventory to get me through the next two weeks, I thought. And then he put that plug out, and psh, over the weekend, it just sold out. That happened Charles, the last time he did it to you, man. Yeah, exactly. That's, he's kind of like the Oprah effect in our business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Charles Poliquin effect. He, he plugs something and forget it. Whatever you have is going to sell out. You could have a 1,000 left of your book, and it's going to be gone by the time he gets that out there. Also, he's one of the few people that – responded immediately to help Warrior Angels out. I, re I actually reached out to a bunch of people we know in the fitness business and asked them to plug Warrior Angels, share the episode we did with Andrew. Yeah. And no one got back to me except for Charles. And he got back to me within probably two hours. His assistant got back to me. And then the next day, they put the the episode up on their Facebook page, which has That's over awesome, 200,000 views. Yeah, so that was really cool. He's a guy who a lot, of, a lot of people say he's very, not condescending, but just intimidating and harsh on people but the reality is is he's a guy who gets stuff done right you ask him to do something he's going to do it he wants to help a cause that you're interested in and he's interested in he's going to get it out well there. most of the people probably saying that are those people we talk about who are like nuisance networkers they're all about you know trying to put him on do something to make them look good but they don't actually have anything to offer for him and that's probably the reason why they say that. that's usually when people start hating like that it's kind of like oh he may, they may have sent him an email and there was nothing that was really worthwhile and then he didn't reply back or whatever else. And they're like, oh, you know what? I can't stand that guy. You know, right. You know, right. So and that's usually what people do. It's just like, dude, maybe it was your approach. Maybe it was you. OK, maybe you're yeah. the problem. So, yeah. So anyway, we'll do shout outs and all that jazz later yeah. on. So I want to talk to our guest today and I don't want to keep him hanging forever. So today we have the first UFC middleweight champion ever. Five time defending champion left the UFC undefeated. And that's Frank Shamrock. And many people look at him as the prototype for MMA, meaning he was the first guy to take all these divergent tools and put them together. He was really good on the ground. He was good wrestler, good striking. And he was kind of the prototype of what we saw with people like George St. Pierre and so forth that we see today. Yeah. So, Frank, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, guys. I was just telling my co-host Sincere that the first time I ever interviewed you was 2002. <laughs> and it was for T Nation magazine. And then I interviewed you again a year later. And that went into the defunct MMA magazine. I think it was called Fight Life or something along those lines. But that's 14 years ago. 
Wow. Just crazy. And I think it was right before you made your comeback. You did a comeback in Strike Elite Force. XE. Yeah, it was Elite, Elite XE yes, and then Elite. Strike Force. And then I think you've, you might have fought in Japan one time before all of that yep. as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, 2002, I launched the uh, – or actually 2003, I launched the WEC on pay-per-view. That's in right. And a light heavyweight match, which is so actually – I was there. To, yeah. yeah, yeah. you invited yeah. me. I came out there as, yep. with a press pass. That was great. I remember I went to your after party and Bill Goldberg was there and uh, <laughs> Jeff Blatnick was there. Really nice guy. And – that, that was that was fun because you were telling everyone about it. You're like, man, I got hit in the head. I almost got knocked out. <laughs> yeah. You surprised me. I didn't think uh, – I, I was believing my own inv- invincibility by then. I mean it had been 10 years. I was undefeated and uh, I'd actually sold the pay-per-view and was the executive producer on that show. Right, right. Uh, so, I mean I had like 9,000 hats on. I was the brand spokesman. I was like – I figured out that, you know, if you just hustle it, you can, you know, grow, help grow the industry. So I was wearing every hat and I had no idea he was going to sock me that hard. It was, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it worked in my favor. But yeah, for about two seconds, I was like, holy, he just, he just cracked me. That was a hard hit. I was there ringside and people don't realize that when you're watching it at home and you see someone get hit, that's a much different experience than when you're there live and especially really close to the cage. Yeah, and it was a tiny cage. And yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> he was two twenty five, maybe two twenty seven. Uh, nervous, twitchy, solid muscle, and and he got scared and hit me, and and yeah, he rocked me, knocked me all the way across the castle. And then, and then, yeah, you submitted him a few seconds later, I believe. <laughs> and then, what's funny is you're walking around the ring celebrating, and Tito was there. He was a, he was in Tito Ortiz was one row in front of me, and then you just pointed him out, and I could just tell from the back of his head that he was pissed off. You know? yeah. <laughs> I didn't even see his face. I could just tell by the back of his head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You we pointed had, you pointed at yeah. him like, hey. I already beat you once you know yeah. or so, something like that some kind of exchange like that yeah yeah i was at a unique position where the <laughs> sport was still developing and so was television network television distribution so right yeah i was like all right if i can get tito on the board you know i can sell this fight and uh, yeah. i just went crazy as a businessman because it was a very underdeveloped industry um there was so much opportunity besides the fighting and i knew the fighting was limited right uh, because of my physical body and i mean i came with a jacked up body i've had a bad back since i was 16 so you know my career was always you know one spinal fusion away from not having a career um so i just had to maximize it yeah, now that you said that was the first WEC event, or was it? It was the first one. That was the first one on pay per view. Okay, he, on pay per view. He came to me actually to fight uh, Ricardo Almeida, and mm. at the Mohegan Sun. Right. And I actually broke my leg in sparring against Crazy Bob. I kicked his elbow, shattered my leg. Didn't know it. Trained for a week on. I'm looking at the manual right now that I actually wrote all the notes in, and I broke my leg after about a week of training. Uh, and I had to pull out of the fight, but I owed him the money, and I'm a man of words, so we threw this other show. Which I was able to sell on pay per view, and you know my my value in Hollywood was growing, and I was able to take their brand to the next level on a easier fight, but a bigger show. Right. So it all worked out, and you know I was able to pay my debt to them. So it gave me a healthy advance, you know. <laughs> right, because you were on you were on Oz at that time, as you had kind yeah. of a guest reoccurring role, the TV show Oz on HBO, and then you were on Texas Walker Ranger before that. Yeah, yeah, slowly creeping my way into Hollywood, and I did the No Rules movie right around that time. Yeah, that's right. I kept, uh, you know, my goal was to get out of this very, you know, violent sport and try to, you know, move into entertainment, um, utilize my other skill sets. 
Yeah, that's one thing that I always found interesting about you is that you said that you're not comfortable with violence and you didn't like the idea of hurting your opponent. That was something that was in your mind. Because a lot of people think as fighters as someone who can't wait to get in that cage and just destroy their opponent. But that was something that was kind of a mental battle that was constantly on your mind. For sure. Yeah, I mean, think about it. And plus, I came from a home of abuse and I came up, grew up as a child of abuse, you know, where, you know, uh, physical abuse is happening and you don't know the boundaries. Yeah. Um, so then to become a fighter and have all of this power and skill, uh, you know, it was very confusing. It was very challenging for me as a, as a human being, as a spiritual human being. Um, and I took, uh, you know, it took a big fight of me just getting the, the hell beat out of me, you know, to realize, well, this is insane. Why am I holding on to this? you know, fear from my childhood and, and conditioning. It's nothing to do with me being a world champion. Hmm. Uh, and I was able to switch that up. But it took, a, you know, it took John Lover beating on me for 20 minutes. Right, I remember you know, that fight. Day. It took 20 that minutes. Was, of, that uh, was super, uh, super brawl, right? That was yeah, a super, super brawl. brawl in Hawaii. Yeah, you told uh, me that. You you, you, weighed two, you weighed 205 for that fight, and you said yeah. a good chunk of it was beer. Beer and <laughs> over But you were, still, you were still pretty shredded, man. So I, I, th- I, think a, yeah, I think a lot of people would love to get on the beer diet if they were going to look like you did in that fight. <laughs> yeah. One, yeah, this was the one training program that I did the beer and oatmeal. It was a complete failure. I got tired and in the half. It looked amazing. It looked like I was a rock star. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Are, are you just genetically gifted with your physique? Because it seems like you're one of those guys who can be pretty lax with his diet and you're still going to be pretty ripped and have abs. Yeah. And I also eat good all the time. Right, right, and right. And I'm always hungry. Like, mine's a machine. I'm always hungry. I'm always ripped as long as I don't drink beer. But when I made beer and oatmeal and weightlifting, with lots of sleeping, I was like just huge and puffy. I was gorgeous. <laughs> Straight farm boy died right there, man. Exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> and he beat the hell out of me. But it changed how I looked at myself in the sport and then what my goals were, you know, which was the big aha moment. And then for, for, for fans who may not be aware, you did have a rematch with him in the UFC and you destroyed him. Yeah. That yeah, was that, just a one-sided <laughs> battle. Yeah, then I brought the pain to him. Plus, he was, he was picking on me. He was like, you know, I'm kind of sensitive, and I was bullied and stuff quite a bit. And right. He was picking on me, sending me like mean texts and Facebook messages. It was early in social media, and um, like calling room service to my room in the middle of the night and just completely messing with me. <laughs> so, but the minute we faced off, I was like, stay focused, stay calm, stay focused, and then I just teed off on him. And Maurice was yelling at me. He's like, calm down. I'm like, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, you looked mad in that fight. It was different than, let's say, the fight you had before against uh, Jeremy, where, I mean, mean, this fight, you looked like you wanted to make a statement. You wanted to beat him up. Yeah, I was I was like schoolyard mad. Like that's it. <laughs> Draw the line. Like I was so mad. <laughs> and then what's funny is he trained with Tito when before you fought him. So he was in Tito's camp. And then I think you guys had you you guys kind of squashed the beef you and John Loper after that fight after you beat him. And then the beef kind of resurfaced when you had Tito coming mm-hmm. up. And then I think you told me that you ran into John Loper in the airport. He's like, "Oh, I feel bad for you. He's, Tito's going to destroy you. He's going to yeah. beat your ass." And then that that fight was like straight out of a movie because it was a fight where Tito's winning every round. He's winning every round. We're like, "Wow, Frank's in trouble." And then all of a sudden, Tito's out of energy. You took over, finished the fight. It was yeah. really cool to watch. And then you flicked off <laughs> Tito's corner because you said John Lober was over there. So you're like, yeah, boom, have some of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he told me, Tito, Tito's going to beat you down. But it was like this because after I beat him up, I felt bad because I'm like a compassionate person. So I go over to him. He's in the airport. His whole face is like chopped open. And I went over to apologize. 
I was like, buddy, I'm sorry about your face. Because he's never going to look the same. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And he's like, oh. And then he got all like, you know, manly emotional and was like, hey, you know, I'm, it was my bad. And I, you know, I picked on you. And, you know, I just did it to get myself up. And it was like a really human thing to say. Right. I was like, oh, John. Like, oh, okay. Squash beefed. We're even. And then all of a sudden I see him again the next time. And he's like, Tito's going to beat your ass. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, he's going to manhandle you. I was like, whoa, John, like, where's that coming from? So the minute I beat him, I went over and I was like, that, that's for you, John. That's for you. Cause, but yeah, I felt basically in the airport, he's got probably 18 stitches in his face. You know, he's just mashed. And um, yeah. he, had, he had like a man moment. And then he turned on me again. <laughs> Do you find that as someone who's been through some abuse, you were in the foster care system, do you find that when when someone tries to bully you in any way, whether it's physical or like in the context of business, that you have a very strong overreaction, like you push what I call the nuclear button? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's visceral, just instantly. And then also for the disadvantage, like if I see you taking advantage of someone or if I feel like that's happening. Right, um, right. You know, it just it doesn't seem right. So. You know, my family, you, you, you step up and you just say something, you know, and then you do something. Uh, I think I think when you go through abuse as a kid and you're powerless, right, you couldn't do anything about that situation. When you when you grow older and you're stronger and now you can handle yourself, I think you have this mentality of never again. So, yeah. like, so even if it's like 20 percent in your direction, you're going to go 100 percent back. <laughs> you know? It's like a I little bit. <laughs> I don't mess around. It was better when I could beat people up all the time and I had that <laughs> the whole thing in my pocket. Uh, and but yeah, now it's it's, you know, you measure it. And, but I certainly feel and that's what the charity is about. That's why I spend so much time helping kids and supporting charities. I remember being that kid. I remember living in the park because I was too scared to go home. Yeah, I remember eating out of trash cans and I remember all that like it was yesterday and I see my eight year old daughter, you know, uh, and I know that, you know, in a few more years, she'll be where I was, yeah. uh, you know, and I have a choice. I can lock her in a closet. I can, you know, traumatize her with stupid stuff and, you know, or I can be a good, you know, patient, focused, loving parent, which is a tremendous commitment and sacrifice in this society. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, hey, I'm into it, you know, yeah. so yeah. I. Now you're yeah you talk a lot about this in your book which is great your autobiography. Now when did you you grew up in how did this how did you end up in the foster care system right was it was it something where your parents had some issues and you were taken away by the system how did that whole thing happen? Yeah I was taken away by the system but it was really my own doing mm. which was in the end my undoing. Um, you know I just started committing a series of small crimes and stealing stuff and being a knucklehead uh, and then. You know, that got me to a position where one day I was throwing rocks at a train. And in the state of California, throwing rocks at a train is a felony, regardless of wow. your age, because yeah. it's dangerous. Trains going 70, rocks going 20, hits the conductor in the head at 90, and it kills him. Right. So I don't know. I'm 11 years old. I'm a knucklehead. Um, and, you know, I'd been in trouble before, but this time they gave me 10 days in juvenile hall. You know, and they took me out of my home. It was the first time i ever been out of my home where I hadn't run away and, you know, hid at the park for a night. Um and I, you know, I was around all the bad kids, and they're like, you know, I told them my stories, and they're like, bro, that's the worst stuff we've ever heard. They're like, that's horrible. And I was like, oh no, these are the bad kids. Tell me my life is horrible. <laughs> like, this can't get any worse. Uh, and you know, I sat down with my counselor, and she's like, listen, you, you know, you keep doing this, you're, you're going to get taken out of your home. And I'm like, bingo, lights on. You know, crime is the vehicle to get out of my home. Mm. I went home, and you know, I was out in a week. Um, and it was, you know, but once I was in the system, then the state was my parents and they were taking care of me and, you know, they looked after me and 
I just didn't have the emotional stability from, from all the abuse. And I didn't have, you know, the communication skills to function well in, in public and in, in a community, uh, without doing stupid stuff and, you know, stealing things, breaking things, burning things, being out of control. Um, and it wasn't until I got into the Shamrock Boys Ranch, which was three or four or five placements later, because I learned if you don't like it and people are bugging you, then you tell them to F off, you break the law and you're back home in juvenile hall waiting for your next placement. Mm. Uh, but there's a ticking clock of escalating crime next to you. And, you know, the Shamrock Boys Ranch was right before you go to youth prison. So I was already the, the biggest knucklehead you could ever find by the time I got there. You know, I got first family structure, my first dad. My first brothers, you know, my first accountability, real community. It was the first family. And I didn't get that till I was twelve, almost thirteen years old. And um, how did how did this whole interest in in MMA develop? Was it through meeting Ken? Yeah, I mean, it just came out of nowhere. Ken was the super athlete guy. Yeah, was always doing this and doing that, wrestling, and walked on to the Chargers. And you know, I was goofy, long haired nerd kid. <laughs> uh, I kept, you know, I, I can only make it a week in sport and I'd get kicked out because someone would say something or pick on me or, and I'd be like, oh, no, you don't. And we'd be getting down and <laughs> getting <laughs> out or, or, you know, the coach would hurt my feelings and I'd have to leave because I wasn't emotionally, you know, stable yeah. uh, and traumatized. So I never got to do it, but Ken did. And he was amazing at it. Uh, and it wasn't until I screwed up the boys ranch, ended up, you know, trying to go, you know, they were trying to send me to youth prison. And, um, you know, transferred myself to adult prison that I was sitting in prison and learning about this new sport and wrestling and everything else that's happening. You know, my dad, Bob's like, you know, you could do this. I'm like, wow, really? Because I don't like to fight. I don't want to hurt nobody. <laughs> I'm like yeah. the most passive guy in the world. Um, but I could see it growing. And it's the only thing I ever had. You know, I knew, you know, I knew how to lift weights. I knew how to steal and rob and I knew how to con people. And that was it. Seems that one thing martial arts gives gives you is self discipline, and I think that'll carry over to the ability to control your emotions and your thoughts. Did you find self confidence? Yeah, right, right. And it gives you purpose. Right, right. A lot of I didn't think I was ever going to make it. Like it didn't seem like I was going to make it. You know, there was no nothing to go home to, or there was no back. There was no support. So even if I did make it, it didn't seem like it mattered. And that's just a terrible spot to be when you're, you know, a teenager. Right. You know, and the, the boys ranch gave me all that. You know, when I when I went to spend my stuff, Bob was like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> He's like, we don't do that here. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you earn, you know, you, you receive. It's like you, you, it's, you know, one for one. Like, that's how it works. And that's that. And then you eat at the table and you show respect. And he was the first one that ever did that for me. Yeah, did you did you feel that you were you were just waiting for the true colors to come out? Where like, okay, this looks like a good situation, but there's got to be something bad that's going to happen eventually. Oh, totally. and you're just constantly in that state of defense. Yeah, yeah, and that's what Ken always said too. I mean, it took years and years for us to, you know, trust. Um, you know, even though Bob opened his home and just lovingly shared his family and made you part of the family instantly, you know, still when you come, I mean, Ken was living in cars when he was ten years old. Mm. I mean, he was stabbed, you know, trying to rob somebody when he was 10 years old, living wow. in a car. Wow. Like, when you live like that, you know, and even though Bob is the most loving person in the world, it's hard to trust anybody. Yeah. Right. Parents are selling you out. You know, your own parent. My mom was locking me in the closet. You know, my dad was psychologically abusing me. When you lose trust in your parents, then who do you trust? Right. Right. So that's where, 
you know, that's where the rules come in. And that's where martial arts and guidance and structure, and because it's, you can rely on it. You know, one for one, a kick <laughs> equals a bruise or a block or a, you know, it's a great life teacher. It's interesting that you're so compassionate because I kind of have a theory about abuse. When you've been through really severe abuse, there's generally two paths you go into. One is extremely self-destructive, which could be continuing that abuse. And the other could be just 100% compassion, where not only do you not want to go through that again yourself, you don't want anyone to feel what you went through. So you start becoming very compassionate to the feelings of others and the suffering of others. And it even works on the other side. If you haven't been physically abused or like directly abused, but if you've witnessed it where you were, yeah. kind of, you were left oh. out of the equation, but you saw mm-hmm. it, you know, like I saw a lot of that growing up and it's just like, I would just say, you know, I got, I got to break the cycle, man. I'm not, I'm not going through this with my kids. And you know, this past weekend, I even had that discussion with my nephews. Like, dude, you know, this is not your legacy. You know, what, what our parents did or what our, you know, our immediate relatives did or whatever doesn't mean that we're damned to do the same thing. It's not, you know, so many people use that excuse like, well, it's just how it is. You know, this is all I know. Well, it's time to try to find some new things and learn some new things. You know, you don't have to just, you don't have to just give in to that. And mm-hmm. so, and one of those things, that's another reason why I was just like, I just want to make sure that, you know, my children or any kids I come in contact with never have to see or hear or feel those things. And I think that really helps out. And I think it's what's really missing with a lot of our youth today when people they're just quick to turn them like, oh, these kids are thugs or, you know, they're just there's no hope for these kids where a lot of times they just needed what you had. Frank was just having that strong male figure around. It doesn't have to be your birth father or something like that or an uncle, but you know, something like that. It could just be that strong male figure where you realize, like, you know what, there's a chance I could actually like. I don't. I don't have to be. I don't have to end up like this, you know, and have yeah. this situation forever. Yeah, and and having brotherhood. Yeah, you know, something that was really valuable to me because, and this is what I learned in martial arts is when you have that brother to go to and train with and and you know work through things with and then practice together and you develop those deep human connections that stop you from self destruction and exactly. you know deepen your empathy. And, you know, because when I came out, I mean, I spent my whole life incarcerated. You know, I felt bad about hurting people, but it didn't stop me from hurting them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, because I had, I was angry as well and I had issues to work through. So, you know, there was a lot going on, but I hurt a lot of people, you know, (laughs) really bad because, you know, a lot happened to me and I had to work through it. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, that's what I tell people. How's that? You know, what does it mean to you? I go, I'm just working through my issues. So I told people half halfway through my career because it was, you know, there was that much going on that I needed, you know, such an intense, you know, physical and, you know, spiritual and social and, you know, connection to develop me. Yeah. In, intense physical training can be very cathartic as well or it, it can act as a, a, a real cleansing vehicle. Oh, yeah. That's why a lot of people have real emotional breakdowns when they start doing intense physical mm-hmm. training. And sometimes we laugh at that. It's like, why is this lady crying over the workout? And it's not the, it's not necessarily the workout she's crying over. It's just that all these repressed feelings are surfacing. Exactly. It's that breakthrough. Yeah, and that's, that's why you got to work out every day. Yeah. You don't work yeah. out every day. It's like a computer. You don't defrag a little bit and, mm-hmm. you know, reorganize. You're going you're gonna to crash. Your mind, your body, your spirit, everything. You got to every day. Well, what's your training like nowadays? Because you're retired. You're still practicing martial arts, of course. Do you have a consistent strength training regimen that you still apply to? I do yard work. I Mm. turn a shovel, (laughs) which is about it, and I hike, (laughs) and that's about it. Um, 
And it's just because I've tried a, a various number of workouts in the past five years after retiring and healing. And pretty much all of them cause joint pain, discomfort, spinal yeah. misalignment, spinal fatigue. And um, I find that if I hike three or four days a week uh, and I eat good and I keep good posture and I sleep good, I feel amazing. Mm. And I look I look good like I used to be an athlete and I didn't let myself go. Right. <laughs> right. You, don't, you don't have the dad bod right now. <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking it's a win because I can still stand up and not like crippled. You know, I feel I feel good after the crew, but I can't do I can't do much, to be honest with you, um, unless I'm in the water and I do something to alleviate the impact. It's just the body's worn out. What about head trauma? Have you ever had any scans or anything? Do you feel that you've suffered any any memory loss or anything along those lines? Nope. No, I mean, I based my whole system on not getting hit and not right. getting hurt. Number right. one, not getting hit. Number two, not getting hurt. Um, and every technique is first protect yourself while you're doing the most amount of damage with the least amount of effort. Yeah, I was just telling Mike, Rob, before you hopped on the call that um, I saw that the Nevada, you know, state um, commission had pretty much passed like where they're going to start doing brain testing on athletes, on all combat athletes, martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, MMA, and doing that for all of them. It's not going to cost the the, the athlete anything to do this. It's taking about like 15 minutes for them to do the scan and look for these proteins that pretty much give an indication of traumatic brain injury. And, you know, I was just wondering, I had posted on Twitter, like, you know, is this a step in the right direction? And, you know, my... Because a lot of times when people start talking about traumatic brain injury, we you know, just like we had Andrew Marr from Warrior Angels Foundation on a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that with combat on combat soldiers. And then, of course, the movie <clears throat> Concussion came out. So then the direction was pointed toward guys in the NFL. But you no know, one ever really thinks about the combat athlete, you know, who's right. like constantly getting punched in the head over and Who's over and over. The head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then they wonder, you know, I was watching that Brian Gumble special back on HBO, probably back in last fall or somewhere last fall. And they were just talking about the correlation between mixed martial artists and, and like violence with like their spouses and things like that. And, you know, what was the correlation? You know, I think they were pretty much hinting toward a lot of this could be toward all the traumatic brain injury. That's that's going on. That's kind of like making these guys have short fuses. And, you know, I I think that could just be part of the problem. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think there might be some other things as well. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is lifestyle choices that, you know, complicate these things. But there's no doubt every time you bump your head and you see stars, you have damaged your brain. Right. So if you're getting plowed in the head, if you're putting a helmet on and running into 300-pound men, <laughs> right. uh, if you're getting knocked unconscious, if you're, if you're seeing stars, if you get knocked to a knee, you're getting minor brain damage. Um, that happens to these people all the time. So it's not that, oh, he took a good shot. Look, he got knocked out. It's just that his style, his mindset, his system is X, and he took a 1,000 of those before the fight. And his brain is now damaged because every shot causes damage. It's not a, you know, if if your brain is shaken inside of your head, there's damage. That's just it. I find it ironic that the fans always encourage that everybody wants to knock out. Everybody wants to see, you know, somebody get knocked out. But then let one of these athletes get in trouble in the news for, you know, he's he's beating his wife or he got into another altercation on the street. street. And then they start killing the guy. Like, oh, he's such an animal. Well, you know, these were the same people who were paying good money to see him behave as an animal in a cage. So quickly how they turn on him. 
Well, it's tough. But I mean, at the end of the day, and this was a lot of my struggle, is uh, I know I'm getting brain damaged and I know I'm damaging somebody else. Mm, right. That's a struggle. You know, and I know as a smart businessman, as an entertainer, as all the goals that I want to have, I have to create a system and a style that protects that, you know, most important. Because, you know, I could break an arm, I could keep going. I could, you know, twist a knee out and, you know, still broadcast. But if I can't string two words together, then I'm done. And I'm an old bunch drunk fighter. Right. Seems like you knew when to exit, right. because we've seen a lot of MMA fighters where it's time. They, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they lose. They, you get knocked out five times in a row, and then you finally give yeah. up, right? It probably would have been better if you gave up after the second knockout rather than the I've fifth. Only, one. <laughs> yeah, I've only been knocked out one time, and I've only been stunned in a fight three times. Knock, which fight were you knocked out in? I was knocked out in my fifth or sixth professional fight when I fought Yuki Kondo in Japan. It's very okay, pancreas, right? Yeah. I wasn't knocked out from a blow. I fell through the ropes and I landed on top of my head on the concrete floor. Ouch. And knocked me unconscious. And I was, it's the only time I've ever lost time and was unconscious except for being choked out. But getting choked out doesn't cause the same damage mm. because it's not a traumatic blow to your head. It just turns the blood off and on again right right so uh, i've been choked out you know probably 20 times um but i've never been knocked unconscious i've only seen stars three or four times in my entire career yeah you had a tough fight against kung lee that was actually a very competitive fight though and yeah. then i think your arm got broken right yeah. in the third round I snapped my uh, right ulna yeah yeah very painful, <laughs> very painful. and kung got me with uh, saw some stars on kung kicked me one time right in the side of the head never saw the kick yeah, yeah, and yeah, knocked my mouthpiece out, and I was like, "What the?" <laughs> Someone had come over the cage and hit me with a stick. So I was like, "What just happened?" I didn't even see it. Uh, you guys you trained know. together quite a bit because you're both yeah. based in San Jose. So I, I think he helped you prepare for some of your fights in the UFC, and I think you might have helped him prepare for some of his fights in another organization. So was, was there anything surprising to you in that fight, or were these things you'd seen before? No, I knew his style through and yeah. through. And, yeah. and the truth was, I was his sparring partner for years. And he would just beat on me because I didn't, I had nowhere near his skill. <laughs> right. His, his, his style was very selective. It was, you know, boxing with takedowns or kickboxing yeah. with takedowns. Very, very, uh, you know, very selective. Right. Um, but I was the only guy that would go after him and he could club on me and I would just, you know, keep coming and never, never stop. So I, you know, got volunteered to be that guy. He would just beat the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> but, um, and he was a good wrestler. But I knew when it came to submissions and I knew if I started rolling and turning my back and doing stuff, I would just annihilate him. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like literally the day of the, the show, I woke up and I go, I think I'm going to, yeah, I'm totally going to stand up with him. And I was telling everybody, <laughs> but I was totally lying and I was just misdirecting everybody and, being, yeah. you know, Frank Shamrock and all that. But I, I woke up and I go, oh, my God, I'm totally and I can do it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and that was yeah so that I, I stood up with him like another so it was guy. kind of a challenge to yourself right you're like yeah. oh, let me see if i can beat him at his own game yeah and i think that's what it was i'd been in it so long and i'd done everything and i right. was looking for things to keep me in the gym and excited and you know and it was it was tough and then that made excited it made it exciting for me that that i could you know fight come in my sport in his style and beat him yeah who knows <laughs> and, and, and then it was an the next fight was also interesting because you fought Nick Diaz, 
And that was kind of a passing of the torch because Nick, I mean, he has a different style than you, but in terms of talking smack to the opponent, that's something that you had done for a long time. Like when you fought Tito, you were just talking smack to him the whole time. Like, oh, you're getting tired, Tito. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're going to give up soon, buddy. You know, so that was, I don't know if anyone else did that at, when, at your, at your prime in the UFC, but he's, he was very good. He's still very good at that. So that, that was an interesting fight because that was somewhat of a passing of the torch. And he had a, he talked a lot of smack to you before the fight, but he also had a lot of respect for you, especially afterwards. Did you feel like that was it for you after that? You're like, you know what? It's time for me to move on. Yeah, I did. And I could feel it wrapping up physically and then my interests, you know, business-wise. Um, it was just getting harder and harder to train. I was getting older and... Uh, you know, I've been going like 16 years by then. Right. Uh, so yeah. And, and I even, you know, after Nick beat me, I, you know, I, I always sit down, I evaluate these things like a business you know, I look at the train, I look at the cost, I, I do a physical and I can look at it like a, a project. And I looked at it and I was like, you know, it was all good. I got hurt. You know, my training had to be adjusted, but when it came to it, you know, and I went to turn the switch on the old famous, you know, here it goes moment. It just didn't go. Yeah. It just, you know, it was click, click. And I was like, wow, that, that didn't happen. Then I was like, you know, punch, punch, click, click. And it, it just didn't go. And I was like, yeah, oh, it never happened before. So I yeah. thought it might be a fluke. And I, you know, chalked it up to getting older and, you know, I was not focused. And so I went back to training camp and I tried it again just to train and see if I could, um, you know, get a baseline of what my skill level was and interest and value. And there was nothing. Like, it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> I go, oh, okay. So it's like two weeks. I go, well, I'm done. Lawyers, <laughs> I'm like, I think I'm done. I go, there's nothing. I think that's it. There's nothing left. Doesn't sound like it was too hard for you to give up because you're such a cerebral guy and you had other things going on as well. Do, but do you find that with a lot of fighters, it's even when you're just losing and you're not the same, it's just so difficult for them to walk away. Hundred percent. Yeah. Even hard for me. Yeah. I mean, I walked away in business and in all that, but mentally, you know. I mean, I retired the first time when I was like 26 or something from, to get out of my contract. But mentally, I, you know, I wanted to fight all the fighters in the world. So it's just a tough battle. Right, right. But when you don't want to fight, that's when you get hurt. You know, when mm. you're done, mm. that's when you get hurt. And I don't want to get hurt. You know, and I, you know, know that the end's going to come. So I've always just prepared for it. And I've always tried to get out. Like, if there's a door, I'm stepping through it. The moment fighting in a cage for money, just go, just go to the simplest, you know, <laughs> and you you want to get out. I'm yeah. you should always be trying to get out of this game because you can't live in a cage fighting for money. It does not work. It was funny when you were in that show with Ken on Spike, right? Where you guys kind of picked up your relationship and Ken's saying, okay, you know, I think you and I should fight as a way to, and you're like, come on, man, I don't want to fight you. Why don't we have to do that? <laughs> it's like your neighbor comes over, he knocks on your door, like, listen, I'm not liking your lawn. We got to fight. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. But, you know, that's the world that we lived in. And, right, and, right. And, but now it seems so foreign, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I teach second grade PE and I'm like on the PTA and, oh, really? okay. and I'm like a super nerd social dad uh, and it's like a whole nother universe when ken's asking me to fight him i can't even imagine right like, dude i'm chaperoning a zoo field trip this weekend yeah. really yeah. between yeah between i'm not going to a field trip with a black eye are you crazy what's wrong with you now you were a business partner with strike force too right were you an investor or you were just 
what were, what was your relationship there? Because I know it was more than just a fighter. Yeah, no, I was um, a partner. Okay, a partner, and the brand spokesman, and the broadcaster, and the main event athlete. Oh, so you had a lot of hats in that organization. I had a lot of hats yeah. in the bra. I mean, I helped launch the whole thing. Scott and I really sat down over coffee, and he was like, we'd, we'd been trying stuff for years in Japan, and we worked together with K1, and we had a lot of success working together. And he literally sat down over coffee one day on our weekly and was like, I want to do MMA. I'm like, no way. You know how expensive it is, how risky it is, and the players. And he's like, I want to do MMA. He's like, what does it cost? And he wrote me a big old giant check. And we started our relationship, and it was hugely successful. Yeah, yeah. It was a, how how did that feel when the UFC bought it out? Was was I mean I'm sure that was a big plus for you financially, but did it did it were you sad to see it go? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was torn. Yeah. Because you know, as a businessman, I was you know prepared and taken care of and excited, and mm-hmm. you know the flip side was you know the little engine that could you know, could not anymore. <laughs> right. And, you know, you could feel that the, the momentum and the spirit of the whole thing, you know, just kind of gotten, you know, whooped out of it. But you know, it's business. You know, when you're on the gl- ground floor and these type of acquisitions and changes happen, yeah. you know, you feel the emotion, you know, much more than the guy who's wearing the suit, you know, signing the thing because, you know, those are, he's used to it. I think it's imp- it's important for fighters to have options. And I think it was nice for fighters to have a viable option. With Strike Force or the UFC, I mean, you have Bellator now, and you have a couple other organizations, but the UFC is the main game, and I think yeah. in a lot of ways that's it's tough for fighters to really negotiate as a result of that. Yeah, it pinches down the marketplace, and when we had Showtime competing with the UFC, that was a good time, right? Yeah. You know, that was a good moment to be making money in the sport as an athlete. Uh, you know, and guys made money, and you know, the concern now is the sport's getting bigger; guys are making less money. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I remember, I remember you and Mara. I remember you and Mara were talking about Gina Carano's fight. And Mara was making the point, like, oh, you know, there's still a lot of sexism in the industry. Anytime Gina walks in, everyone has to talk about how good looking she is. And Mara's like, you know, no one talks about how good looking you are, Frank. And, you, <laughs> and you're like, well, they should. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, I wouldn't mind that at all. Yeah, yeah right. It's okay. <laughs> Did you? You guys were very ahead of the curve with female MMA. Right, because oh, yeah. Dana White, UFC, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. While Strike Force, you had Cyborg fighting there, you had Gina Carano there, Very Misha cool. Tate, Ronda Rousey came, started off there. So you guys, you guys saw an opportunity where other people didn't think there was one. No, and we'd had a little, you know, Coker had experience from the Bay Area with promoting kickboxing, girls kickboxing, mm-hmm. and they always brought the house down. You know, the girls, you know, getting after it were always a big seller. They were always one of the highlights of the evening. So, yeah, I mean, they took a risk. Showtime took a risk. And I mean, it paid off huge. The biggest stars in the sports, you know, in the sport have been females. Right. You know, up to this yeah. point. I mean, in all honesty, the ones yeah. who transcended and gone to the next level, the biggest stars, if you will, have been, you know, ladies. Yeah. I mean, Gina started off there mm-hmm. and now she's in movies left and right. You know, Ronda's the biggest name in UFC. Now Misha, who was a Strike Force champion, is a big name in UFC. So that's definitely true. You got Cyborg about to yeah. you know, have her debut with you know with the UFC now, which is something people have been waiting on forever. And that's a stacked card coming up, man. That's that Brazilian card. It's crazy. Yeah, Cyborg is scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a scary fighter to watch. Yeah. So understatement, Mike. <laughs> and the, okay, no, the worst or the best part? She is the sweetest, like. Lady, and it yeah. seems that way like in all just interviews. Tiny voice, just sweetheart. Like you just want to <laughs> hug her. 
And then yeah. you watch the train, you watch your fight, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, don't let her get near me. Like, it's completely intimidating and scary. And see, yeah. that's what makes her scary. And she can just turn on that switch just like that. And it's just that incredible Hulk type situation where he goes from Bruce Banner yeah. to the Hulk. Yeah, you, you don't want to be her husband or boyfriend and get, get, in, get into a little fight and all of a sudden you're getting knocked out. How did it escalate to this? You just wake up like, what happened? <laughs> you didn't take out the trash. That's what happened. <laughs> I got to ask you about your experience on Oz because we always make Oz <laughs> reference jokes on this show because we're both fans of that. So you had you had a reoccurring role. It was somewhat of a small part, but you were on it for a few episodes. What was it like being on set, especially for someone like you who had been through the the system? Was it was it just eerie in a way that you have any kind of flashback when you're on the set, going, "Oh man, this feels a little bit too authentic." No, nah, it was. I mean, it felt pretty authentic actually, but it was pretty cool actually. It was, I mean, it was high level production. So I mean, my very first TV show was Walker, Texas Ranger gig, where I bought Chuck Norris. Uh, and then, you know, so I was in prison on my very first ever. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, oh, like the very first role ever. I'm back in prison. I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> so doing it, it was, it was really cool. And the actors were great. And it was a nice set. Like everyone was down. Like they yeah. were really into the prison you know, vibe and, and experience. And it felt like you were in prison. I mean, people were, and then some of the guys I knew from prison, like it was really eerie. I was like, this is just too much. Oh, wow. But that's what gave it that great feel. I mean, oh, it, yeah. you felt like, wow, I'm looking inside of a prison. And that show is the ultimate yeah. scared straight show. Oh my God. Show, oh, show, any, I'm telling you, show any kid that show. I did it. I did it to my son just when he's kind of going through those early teen years and he was just kind of <laughs> acting out. I was like, oh, really? Okay. This, I'm going to show you where you're heading. And so I show some of the most gruesome scenes. You know, most parents are there like, how could you do that? Like, I was like, no, that's the reason why he's a stand up kid now. He saw that. He straightened up quickly. <laughs> I mean, especially when you see like your favorite rapper all of a sudden, he's getting, you know, he's about to get gang raped in the shower. <laughs> he's like, okay, you don't look at Method Man the same anymore. <laughs> so he's like, you can't even listen to a Wu Tang album the same anymore. He's like, I saw what happened to Method Man on Oz and I'm going to go ahead and say. <laughs> there, there was some very disturbing stuff on there. Luckily, oh, I, I didn't have to participate in it. Well, like, I was going to say, did you have yeah. a clause in your contract? No, no rape scenes. <laughs> no. I definitely would have, would have. Of, uh, no pun intended. Pushed back on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would not want to. Like, no, no, no. We're not doing I'm good. This. <laughs> you know, you know what's funny is I don't know if you've seen the show Sons of Anarchy, but yeah. the, the writer for it, I think Kurt, I forget his last name, Kurt Sutter. He also did The Shield. Yeah. Now he's he's a he's a weird cat because he has he has rape scenes in both, and it seems like every show he's ever done, The Shield and Sons of Anarchy. Now, what, what makes him even more weird is that he acts in some of his shows, and there was an episode of Sons of Anarchy where he's in it as a biker member getting raped. Now, I was like, why would you put that scene in there as the writer? You know? That's when you're all in, man. Yeah, exactly. That's Literally. Commitment. That's commitment. You know, somebody was like, listen, man, I'm not doing that. And it's like, I'll do it. Okay, screw it. <laughs> yeah, he's leading by example. I'll give him that. He's good. That's how you get it done. If I'm the writer, I'm like, no, 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 no. If I'm the writer and the actor, I'm going to be selective with my scenes. I love it. No, that's believing <laughs> You got to, you got to believe. Otherwise, you know, no one will follow you. Yeah, you took some acting. You, you moved out to Santa Monica for a while, didn't you? Weren't you taking acting classes for a while? Yeah, yeah. I went to the D, uh, Joanne Barron, D.W. Brown School of Dramatic Acting in um, Venice. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, just four hour classes of just dig deep. You know, ball in your eyes out acting. Mm. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was actually one of the tools that helped me um, emotionally. 
and start digging into my emotional, you know, barriers and, and issues and stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of actors feel that way too. Yeah, I think so. I think it's why they pursue it. It becomes that cathartic, you yes. know, experience and, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of these people are driven into themselves or into their own creativeness. Right. You know, and then there's a desire to come out and expression. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But I liked, I liked the acting. I, I was the only guy I had to sign an addendum to my contract so that I could eat. It's four hours and you can't eat. And I'm like, guys, I can't make it four hours. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they gave me, they're like, what do you like? They're like, no Hollywood stars ever asked for a meal. I'm like, well, I need a meal. <laughs> so they were all, they, I, they either thought I was crazy or I was going to be the next big thing because they were just like, they kind of <laughs> acquiesced and were like, okay, we'll let you eat. <laughs> so I was like, all right. Yeah, because you've always been a believer in five or six small meals throughout the day, right? Yeah, because I get hungry. Yeah. You know, and I feel my mind slip. So for me, it's about consistent fuel and good fuel and hydration. And, and I can feel when it's bad, you know, because my body, it's, it's pure and clean and I feed it all the time. Right, right. Now, what do you think about with strength training in the reference of MMA? That's, that's kind of a controversial topic. You have some people like Steve Maxwell who believes that you, sh- you should just focus on the sport you're doing. So if you want to get better at takedowns, you just keep drilling takedowns. If you want to get better at, at punching power, you just keep working on technique there. And then, so, and then there's others who believe that you should work on strong compound lifts, the powerlifting stuff, kind of like what John Jones is doing right now. Do you feel that powerlifting, the way John Jones is doing it, is beneficial for MMA, or is that a distraction? Well, I think it's beneficial. Yeah. And I think for all of these, that's really according to where your body's at and mm-hmm. in your development, in your, in your career. Yeah. Um, and if you're a new guy and you're not strong, you need to do both. Right. Um, you know, but it, it comes down to, you know, the, the power is the technique. That's number one. But if you have more power in your technique, right. You are infinitely better. Right. Um, but then again, if you have no technique and lots of power, you're not going to make it long. <laughs> right. So it really is a tip for a tap. But yeah, you should develop. Here's what I learned and what I know right now. And the reason why I would never go in and fight. I don't have enough muscle mass to take the abuse, the damage, the contusions, the twists, the turns that is needed to participate at that level. Yeah. And you need strong, dense, you know, flexible, good muscle. Mm-hmm. That's what that can take damage. If you don't, you know, you'll break stuff. Like there's right. that much impact and you know twisting and turning that you'll snap things right off. Yeah. So you need the strength to hold the machine together and to be effective with the technique. And the more strength, the better. Right. Now that makes perfect sense. Now you get better at technique by obviously practicing the technique. But if you want to improve the power to transfer to that technique, then you need to be stronger. And that's where yeah. the strength and conditioning program makes sense. And you have to have it. Because if you don't, you, all you need is one guy who's, you know, three points stronger and, you know, equal in technique, and he'll beat you. Yeah. Because he's got three points more. Right. You know, you'll tire out first. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, when you were when you were fighting, I, I, at least in the early stages, you were doing some powerlifting. I remember I saw you doing stiff-legged deadlifts. You were doing heavy presses, pull-ups, et cetera. Somewhat of a at a different phase is somewhat of a bodybuilding regimen. Was that just to fortify the body, make it strong, yeah. make it more resilient? Yeah, for me, because of my back and I had all the 
you know, spinal issues. I could never do any of the big lifting, mm-hmm. you know, the big squatting, the heavy lifting. The last right. time I did that was in, in 20s in prison, you know, teens and 20s. Right. So, so after that, it just became like a bodybuilding routine. It was about right. keep muscle mass on my body, maintaining enough density so I wouldn't get hurt. Right. And then, you know, it was also my natural weight's about 182 pounds. So I had to hold 10 extra pounds of muscle while training four or five times a day. Right. So I was just constantly consuming calories to maintain all the muscle so I could compete in the weight class where the money was. Yeah. Because right. there was no other weight classes and no other money for little guys. <laughs> right. So it was the bigger, I tried to stay as big as I could. Uh, so for me, it was about muscle mass and the strength I never was concerned about because I would never was a strong person. I don't have that. Ken Shamrock is a, you know, pull off 400 pounds and bench at any day type strong person. Right. I was never that guy. I don't have those, you know, dense, thick muscles. Mine are all mushy and go right to the bone. Yeah. So for me, I just need to be fast and flexible and have enough to withstand the trauma. Right. Mark Kerr was another guy that was the he, he's the guy you would think of for power. Oh yeah, just ridiculously strong. And he worked with you, and I think I read in some interviews somewhere he said that you were the sharpest guy in the game. You have the highest IQ. You had the best advice on strength training and conditioning for the sport. Well, yeah, I think at my time I was the super nerd. <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> I mean Tito came to you after he lost you and said, "What do I need to do to improve?" And you said, "You need to work on your conditioning." Totally. And then you have him doing a lot of stuff on the pre-core machine. Yeah, yeah, I gave him the vascular because he really lost in vascular condition. I think muscularly he would have made it. Right. But vascularly, there was no way he could keep, you know, maintain that speed during our fight. Yeah, and conditioning was never a problem for him again. After all of his subsequent fights, his conditioning was on was great. Yeah. No, no, it completely, you know, fixed that. And that's what Maurice Smith did for me. You know, we know I, I never knew anything about conditioning because I wasn't an athlete. So you know, or cardiovascular rather. And, you know, the first time he taught me about cardiovascular, and then I could adjust my system. Before, I had to fight according to how much energy I had. <laughs> so techniques that I would want to apply, I'd have to value right. decision on, do I have enough energy to apply it? Right. And that's that, that, and then I never knew that that wasn't normal, that you could just make a, yourself vascularly so strong that you could just react and make the best biomechanical motion necessary. <laughs> when I learned that, I was like, wow, I'm going to kill everybody. Right. <laughs> and that, that's how I did. Yeah, because a lot of people look at using an elliptical machine or a pre-core machine. They go, oh, that's not functional. That's not what you're doing in your sport. And they're kind of missing the point, right? They're working on those energy systems so that you have the endurance and the structural integrity to last when you want to do what you want to do in the ring. Yeah, because to to maintain a speed that's near vascular, um, you know, you've got to be in great shape for 15 minutes, you know, for a championship round, you're going to be in amazing vascular shape besides the muscular shape, the conditioning, besides all the others. Your vascular conditioning needs to be amazing. Did you ever find that after your fights, you would someone would just recognize you on the street and they would just – just someone who obviously looks like they've never been in any kind of fight ever in their life would just start giving you advice like, hey, man, you need to work on this. <laughs> I, was, I was some guy drinking a Bud Light with a gut going, look, man, you need to work on this. Uh, no, I mean I've gotten a couple of pieces of, of advice. They're usually from well-meaning like martial arts folks. Right, right, um, right. And um, it's usually online where people give me quality advice. Uh, but I have gotten this odd situation where I meet people and they're so excited that they kind of forget that I'm Frank Shamrock and they start telling me the story of how they train with Frank Shamrock. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then they and they start going on this journey, and I'm trying to participate in the journey, but not tell them I'm Frank Shamrock because it seems really un- weird at the moment. Uh, <laughs> and I just let them go on, and I try to you know divert and <laughs> get away as soon as possible. <laughs> but they're like, "Oh my god, we trained! It was amazing!" And and I'm looking at the guy going, "I've never trained with this guy. I would remember, <laughs> you know." <laughs> And and they tell me these stories. I'm like, man, I go, that sounds awesome. And I just try to leave because I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I'm flattered by it because you know that that someone's making up a story that entails is, is awesome. He's um, like, you missed your calling, but he should have been a writer yeah, in Hollywood. I, I know a guy. I, I, I want to participate. I'm just like, that sounds amazing. And I'm like, run, run. Like, <laughs> so let's talk about your. You're doing a lot of charitable stuff now too with the Shamrock Way. What inspired you to start this path? Well, when, uh, when my dad passed in 2010, you know, I, I really felt the loss and I wanted to do something, you know, with his name and besides make money and, you know, all the life I've been blessed with. So I've been kind of tinkering with the idea and working with Ken. Uh, and we weren't talking back then. So it took a few, uh, a few years to get it going. But, um, at the beginning of last year, I started getting some requests to pitch TV shows about certain things and, I pitched a whole bunch of them and I sold a couple. And one of the guys asked me, what do you really want to do? And I started telling him about the boys' ranch. And as I was telling him, I was realizing this passion that I felt and that I really wanted to do it. So originally it was a TV show. And we started you know, producing a TV show. And I got about halfway into it. And then I stopped and I went, wait a minute, we can't produce a TV show. That's ridiculous. <laughs> we need to produce the real thing. Right. And make a TV show about it. <laughs> TV, you've, you've, you've created backwards. Um, so I <laughs> the brakes on everything. I said, wait a minute. I don't want to be a TV producer and do this stuff. I want to do this for real and help people and make an impact with that risk use and their communities and do what the Boys Ranch did for me. Um, and I got my whole group together and I said, listen, <laughs> they're all TV producers. I said, this is what I want to do. And they all thought I was crazy. But they gave me money and they gave me their blessing. And so I filed a nonprofit last year. Um, and we're up and running. We're shamrockway.org. We protect, you know, at-risk youth in their communities. And we have an event tonight um, that's uh, actually May the 3rd. It'll air at 7 p.m. All of our events are going to be live, and they're fundraised. I'm teaching martial arts to the world. I'm teaching it for free at various martial arts schools around the country. And we're streaming it on the Internet so that you can participate. And then we're having a live auction and a Q&A afterwards. And that's like uh, the crazy fundraiser thing that we're doing next. And our goal is to reopen the Shamrock Boys Ranch. They want to create that community ranch, that family atmosphere where, you know, kids on the edge, instead of going to jail and youth prison, like, like I did, they can go to the ranch and get a readjustment on life. Yeah. Is this something or do you already have a bunch of kids involved right now or is you're in the process of taking people in? Right now, we're in the process of building the ranch and okay. the land. Okay. But yeah, we're, we're at ground zero. We originally tried to get some partners and go in on ranch. They were already existing. And, um, you know, we live in America, so everyone wants to make money. Right. We have nonprofit. We're not interested in making money. We're interested in helping kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we pulled back. We're going to buy our own piece of land. We're going to use modified shipping containers to build our own little ranch. It's going to have a dojo right in the middle of it. We're going to teach martial arts, personal development, community uh, participation, uh, mentorship. And we have a bunch of programs that positively influence a community and um, help young boys. Yeah. 
I think this kind of thing is critical because it's all about preventing things rather than totally. waiting for problems to happen and, and then, then reacting. It's like yeah. waiting for your car to completely break down and then you take it to the shop as opposed to anticipating those things, doing the checkups, making sure things are working before it becomes a problem. Right. Yeah, and you talk about youth crime. I mean, it's a $7 billion you know, tab each year Yeah, that, that we're paying. Which is because we're not, because, yeah, because we're not instituting these programs. We wait until there where I was going to youth prison. Yeah, like wow, you're a total screw up, and you got all these felonies. You can't work, but we need you to go do something and get out of here. It's just completely messed up. There's right. no future for those kids. Right. Once you've got that on your record, you can't get hired. Right. You can't just show up. Um, you know, and usually those kids have fallen by the wayside scholastically. You know, which is usually the beginning of these slides. Yeah. Usually the community gives up and then the parents give up because they usually have more kids or there's only one parent. Yeah. And then financially, you know, the state and the Fed, these these funds don't exist for these kids anymore. Not until they're locked up. So they can't get the help until they're locked up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem is you got to get in like like I did. You got to get in jail and get in trouble to get help. Yeah. That's not how it's supposed to work. No, no. no so you got to get in trouble to get out of trouble. That's that's a big, yeah, that's a big assumption. That hoping you want to try to switch that up a little bit, and we have the opportunity to do that with the ranch and the charity. Yeah. Now, I think another problem is the fact that a lot of prisons, even youth prisons, are becoming privatized. Yes, we're saying. So, so now, yeah, now judges are incentivized. You know, the more prisoners, the more money you make, and now there's an incentive to fill up these places. I think that's a huge problem. Uh, that's a problem. And, you know, the, the other problem with our industry is we have therapists and communities that get money for referrals and kickbacks. And, right. you know, it's become a for-profit industry. Right. So kids that need help aren't getting individual personalized development and one-on-one attention in their community. They're getting pushed into these, you know, clinical programs that cost money. Yeah. It's kind of like healthcare system, right? It's yeah. like there's there's a lot of money being made from people being sick as yeah. opposed to no preventing business, yeah. them from becoming sick. <laughs> there's yeah. no money in but a what, cure, man. It's like, what is a what does a young man really need? A couple of sit down conversations and some support and some out of boys and a little bit of community. Absolutely, and a complete and a complete box set of odds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like that's. You know, they, yeah, that'll cure you right there. <laughs> just, just an Oz, Oz marathon. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to have a fun Saturday. We're going to watch a whole season of Oz. <laughs> sit him in the living room in the dark. You know, he's like, you're not getting up. Nope, no water. We're going to watch every last episode. That's the coming of age moment now. Exactly. <laughs> watch the whole series. We're going to do an Audubisi marathon. Like every, every, <laughs> every scene where Audubisi abuses someone for the next few hours. See what you think about that. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, in a, in a, we always talk about the importance of self-belief, but you're not going to have self-belief if no one else believes in you either. That's the interesting one, too, there. So you, have, you need someone else to believe in you first for you to believe in yourself. Yeah, it's like credit. You can't. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Unless you got it, and then someone's got to give it to you. But that's right. what most kids, like I grew up without a dad. Right. I didn't know that your dad gives you guidance. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that that's what your dad did. They, yeah. Like, out and you're like, hey, gangster homie, you know, tell me about this. And that's how you learn stuff. Um, but there's actually somebody whose role is to teach you those things. And when that guy is missing, you go searching for that information elsewhere. Right. Exactly. You make decisions that are not going to benefit you or your family or your community or what your real dreams are. Yeah. And if you don't know, like I didn't know, my dream was always to be a world champion. If it hadn't fallen into my lap, 
if I hadn't have never given up on it, even after going to prison, even after everything else, um, you know, if I hadn't had that one dream, I'd just be in prison the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And if I hadn't found somebody to support it and, you know, it, it was happening, I'd just be sitting in prison with all the other guys I grew up with in prison. And say, we need to provide that place where kids can go, wow, that's Oz. Ain't doing that. And <laughs> these are my goals. And here's a group that's going to help me make them. It's like, boom, you know, back yeah, to work. Once you get stuck in gang culture and now prisons are right of passage, right. I mean, it's just the neural pathways that are being built in your mind are extremely unhealthy, to say the least. Well, it's, actually yeah, a step, it's a step up from gang life. It's like a lot of kids end up joining right. gangs because they need somewhere to belong or to feel safe because a lot of times those gangs are picking on these kids. They're walking home from school or whatever else. So it's a like it's a situation where if you can't beat them, join them. And so yeah. and after that, you know, you're kind of on the streets, you're hustling, you're doing all this stuff. But then once you go to prison, you're like, wait a minute. So I get three square meals a day. I have somewhere to sleep. Yeah. I don't have to worry about my clothing. I don't have to worry about having a roof over my head. Well, hell, why would you want to leave that? You know, especially when you don't really have to pay for it. The only thing you have to do is just try to survive and, and enjoy it another day. Well, also, you're going to learn skill sets that make you a better criminal. Exactly. Yeah, if exactly. when you get out. Yeah. Exactly. I learned the most, uh, the best criminality stuff ever going to prison, <laughs> adult prison, because there was adults teaching me right. criminal stuff, not kids, you know, who hadn't, you know, trial and error and worked through it. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's a problem, you know. We don't have these programs in our communities anymore, and we need to create them. And the martial arts schools are doing a really good job of doing this because this is where you need to send kids like me. You know, sports are doing a great job of doing this. But when, you know, I couldn't stay in a sport. I'd freak out and be kicked out. You know, when you can't, you know, because no one knew that when I went home, I was locked in my closet. You know, I didn't get to have dinner with, with the family. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, I couldn't function. It's like there's some kids who, who can't because something's going on and we need to figure out what that is. Yeah. And the community can't do it. You know, sometimes the parents can't do it, won't do it or are hiding it. Um, you know, and, and our job is to protect them because, you know, someone needed to step in and help me. And it just came because, you know, God looks after, you know, kids that need help. Yeah. And we want to do the same. I think the mentality people need to have is look at these things as our problems as opposed to problems that are separate from you. A lot of times, especially during political times right now with the presidential race coming up, people often like to defer responsibility to others. Like, oh, our leader should be doing this. They should be doing that. But what are you doing, you know, as an individual? Because change happens with individuals. Yeah, no, it's true. And that's the toughest thing I see with bullying right now, too. You know, we're seeing the development of a social disease yeah. where people just ignore it. And right. kids are taught to ignore it. The parents are ignoring it. And then the kids are learning and perpetuating and doing it because yeah. everyone's just ignoring it. And the teachers right. are ignoring it because no one knows what to do. And, uh, and, and I'm there in first grade watching it happen because it mm. starts in kindergarten. Don't, you don't think it happens in third, fourth, fifth grade. It's happening Preschool in kindergarten as well. yeah, because whatever is going on at home, right. it's happening exactly. in a social community. You know, whoever's bullying, whoever is being, you know, mirrored and monitored and modeled by the children. Yeah. yeah. And then and then they're getting, you know, objectified and they're, you know, they're the bully now and they're the kid. And, and that's how they identify. And the whole thing is jacked up. Yeah. Now, when someone should go, hey, don't don't pick on that kid. What's wrong with you? We don't pick on kids. That's wrong. <laughs> because that's how you stop it. And then you have yeah. another kid who goes, hey, don't pick on that kid. Picking on kids is wrong. Yeah. And that's what I teach, you know, my daughter. That's what I was taught. That's what Bob Shamrock taught me. Do what's right. But we got a bunch of people looking the other way. They don't want to participate. 
Well, then those that want to step in and, and participate, they're getting ostracized by these people who don't want to participate. Like you need to stay like the teachers that try to intervene, like you need to stay out of it and don't touch the kid. Yeah. Don't if you're trying to pull two kids apart, you know, from a situation, you touch that kid and now that teacher is facing being fired and being right. sued. And so it's just like, I mean, I came from a time like, look, man, when when things are going down in school and then, you know, oh, here comes coach so and so. You knew he had he was coming with that paddle and you <laughs> everybody <laughs> stopped. You know, it, it was over. The fight ended. No one kept going because you it's like, you know what? <laughs> I, there's I'd rather get punched in the face later on in the afternoon after school than have to deal with Coach Allen popping me three times with that paddle, you know, and then calling my mom who's going to tell my dad. So it's like that, <laughs> that, that that butt whooping is just not going to end that day. So just go ahead and just stop it now, man. But, you know, now it's just. There's so many precious snowflakes out there that are coming from this. Oh, we just all need to just get along and, you know, just just we just need to stay away from each other and just stay out of each other's business. And that's how it works. No, it's not each other's business. It's all of our business, because this kid is going to end up now. He's having this record that he was a bully and it stays on there from kindergarten on way to if he makes it to 12th grade. He's always known as he's had criminal behavior since kindergarten. That's what it translates to. And so that's all you know, just like you're saying, Frank. And then he's going to end up in the system. And now he's going to become a criminal. We might end up being victimized by him later on. And it all could have been avoided if someone had just stepped in and gave this kid a chance. Like, hey, dude, you're better than this. Let me show you why you're better than this instead of just saying that. Because these kids need to believe it. You can't just tell them that. You know, you're better than being a bully. Well, show me how. <laughs> you know, because they may not get that at home from a parent. Yeah. Yeah. And now with bullying, it's it's permeated into other avenues because online bullying oh, is a yeah. big problem. And sometimes people laugh at that. They go, oh, that's silly. But you know, you have to realize that as, as a young person, you're fragile. So if a bunch of people – I mean I, I would hate to grow up right now as a kid where I think of some of the dumb stuff I did when I was a teenager and imagine someone filming that and putting it up on YouTube. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> and you're just being crucified or, you know, by the world, potentially. Right. You know? Everyone's got their cameras out now. And you're in a really fragile state of development. And those things can be tremendously negative on you. And that's why some kids are committing suicide from these things or it's 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 I mean, it's a negative huge, behavior, it's a, you know. It's a really big problem. Yeah, yeah and it doesn't end with the technology. Right. You know, before right. you go to school, it's tough. You hate going to school. It sucks. You suck it up, and then you, you know, you keep your head down. Now you go home, and it just keeps going. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, the social media, and it's different. You know, before, you know, it's it's a silent, you know, victimless crime where everyone thinks it is, but it's not. You know, it happens at school, and then they go home. They picked on social media, and everyone joins in. And it's just terrible. And then the bullies, here's what I'm realizing. Most of them don't know that they're a bully. Mm. They don't know what they're doing is wrong mm. until they're that guy and they're doing it. Yeah, because so much is socially acceptable now, thanks to the Internet. It's just yeah. like, well, it's just the way things are. <laughs> yeah, and, pro- and the problem is these kids are learning it from zero to eight. Then they know it. It's programmed in them. And yeah. that's who they have become. And their tendency is to do that unless trained otherwise. So, you know, by the time they develop and are in a position to be recognized for a bully, they're a bully. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just jacked because, you know, parental figures should have been like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, you know, this is what we do. This is how you, you know, instead of grabbing your wife's arm and going, come over here, dummy. You know, that's where you learn things like this. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. The first thing you the first behaviors you learn are from your parents. 100%. so then, and then with the bullying thing is, if someone's a bully in in the in the kindergarten, you have to go, okay, what's going on at home? Exactly. So it, can't, it can't be a good home environment. 
if this kid's bringing it here. No child just comes out of the womb like, okay, I'm here, world. Now give me somebody I can go beat up on now. You know, yeah. some, some, let, give me some lunch money. Let me take that <laughs> bottle from that baby over there. You know? yeah. He just come out gangster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, his pampers sagging and everything. Come on. <laughs> It's all about trying to take power back in some way, right? Like you're losing power at home. So then you go to school and you're like, I'm going to pick on this kid because I have now I have power over him. And then that kid's going to be like, OK, well, this this kid just took my power away. Now I got to go pick on someone so I get the power back. So it sounds like with the Shamrock way, what you're sitting up there is. I mean, some people say that like George St. Pierre wouldn't be the fighter he is today if it wasn't for all the bullying he went through. And that may be true, but that doesn't mean that you know we should be bullied as a way as a personal development technique, right? So I think I think a better alternative to that is what you're setting up, where you're you're creating these different skill sets, or you're creating a competitive environment within the context of martial arts. So you're learning these skill sets, and you're learning how to be tough without taking power from others. Yeah. Because the only reason why this is not happening is we don't have that parental structure in place and everyone's too busy and we're on the Internet. <laughs> Before, we would sit down and be like, son, I, I need you to hit that kid. Or listen, you got to stand up to him. Right. Or hey, if he's right. picking on you, here's what you do as a dad. Here's your guidance. Yes. Um, when that's not there or when that figure or that leadership is not there, then they either retreat inside themselves and they become the bully or the bullied or, you know, they lash out like I did. Yeah. But somebody has to guide them. And it's not happening in school. Everyone's afraid. It's not right. happening online. Everyone's free to say whatever they want, do whatever they want. Right. Yeah. But it hurts. You know, if someone says something mean to me, I'm a grown man. But if you come up to me and say something mean, that sucks. And that's going to hurt me. Right. That's what it does to a young human being who's a teenager or a developing mind. Regardless of what's said, and you can say it freely on social media and have no recourse or ability to back it up. Right. You know, before I'd show up and be like, I don't like you. You bullied me. We're hitting this. You know, and now you don't have that opportunity. Exactly. And your parents aren't telling you to go do that. Yeah. yeah now, now, now you're like, now, now, now all you can do is say, I'm going to block you on Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm going to create another account and I'm going to keep on messing with you. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, just keep trolling, you know? Keep messing with me, man. I'm going to block you. <laughs> I'm going to delete cringe. you. Yeah. The community can stop that because the community can go, hey, that, no, that's not cool. Right. Because what nobody wants is to be ostracized out of the community. Right. You know what I mean? Because no one wants that. Right. And they'll no, learn. Everyone learns. No, what you say is true, too, as well, though. As an adult and someone comes at you with a lot of negativity, a lot of us like to say, oh, I could care less about that. But on some level, you do care. Totally. And, and it's I mean, you're, but when you're an adult and you're centered, you just you don't let it affect you to the point where you do something stupid. But it still bothers you. Yeah, totally. Because it sucks. Why would, <laughs> yeah, someone, yeah. why would someone say or do that? Right, right. Like this person doesn't even know me, and they're saying, yeah. that, you know? and the fact that and the they we're all think, still human, you know. Yeah, yeah, the fact they think they have the ability, freedom, or whatever to do that to another human being is just right. beyond me. Right. You know, but that's what people do. But they, it, it's real. It's palatable. And when you're a child and you're a young mind, you know, it exists. And whatever your mind sees, thinks, feels, whatever you visualize and put in your mind is reality. Yeah. So they're being bullied, and it's reality. Yeah, you know, it just it is, and it's got to be changed. And the only way to change it is to say, you know, don't do that. Right. Here's what you do instead. You know. I think that one of the real negatives of the internet is it's allowed the inner coward 
to develop yeah. fully, <laughs> right? No, I mean, I mean, you look at YouTube and let's say like there's a Beyonce video and you look at some of the comments and of course these are anonymous people and they're dropping the N-word left and right and all, it's all this racist vitriol. And these are people that you probably see in everyday life all the time who would never verbalize that <laughs> stuff in the real world. But this is who they really are because they're in this really comfortable environment where they're anonymous and now they can say what they really think. I can say the presidential race right now is really like magnifying oh. that attitude. Now it's like people are saying like, "Wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> Did you just say that?" <laughs> like, yeah, Larry King calls it electile dysfunction. Exactly, you know, like our our current race right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible, and you can see the decline in communication and compassion right. in our electoral race, and right. what social media has done to people's you know mindset. It's okay to do that stuff. It's right. okay to talk about people and call them names and I think it's even, them. It's even encouraged, right? Because well, you look at ourselves. yeah, you look at reality TV shows like really negative behavior is encouraged. Otherwise, it's considered boring. Right, and yeah, that's I mean, is. yeah, that's why I don't watch it because it's exactly. like you know, to me, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of human spirituality because we are a heck of a lot better than that. And there's other no, things we could be doing than picking on each other and making fun of each other. Yeah. No, it's about as productive as putting your head in the microwave for 10 minutes. Yeah, that's that's what that's what reality TV does to your brain. You're just you can just feel like brain cells dying with each minute you're watching. You know, it's like, man, I'm getting dumber as the minutes go along here. I can just feel it happening. You know? <laughs> but but the problem is, is because it's so now now there's a. This is a separate discussion from bullying, but now people see a pathway to stardom as just being a reality TV person, just being an Instagram. I'm an Instagram model. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah it's I'm not a, a pathway from bullying because a lot of that is built on bullying. I mean, a lot of these reality stars bully someone on the show. So right, right. It, it bullies at the heart of even that stuff. Those are the most popular characters on those shows. <laughs> exactly. Screaming at everyone, throwing drinks in people's faces, you know, like threatening people. So, yeah, it, it's not too far. Even on the UFC reality shows, right? I, I rarely ever watch the TUF shows just yeah, because I, I just find all this. I just, I just find all the banter between people just irritating, boring. But anyway, I was watching a few clips of the current one now with yeah. Joanna. Oh, Joanna. Who, who, oh who, who I like, but her but, behavior. But I'm, constantly, that, I'm getting to the point where I'm not liking her very much. Yeah, anymore. absolutely. Her She's behavior becoming the new Rwanda as far as this show is concerned. It's absolutely. like, I ended up loving Misha by the end of that that, that season. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah, exactly. now I'm loving, you know, Claudia now. Claudia, I'm like, yeah. I, I want Claudia to take the belt now, dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's too much. And obviously, part of it is someone's following you around with a camera, so that's going to And you on. The producer's like, hey, hey. Absolutely. Get the face. Yeah, and it's so, being edited in a certain way too. Yeah, yeah. And the producer has a notepad, and he's going over and going, "Hey, did, do you know what so and so just said about you?" <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you talk about that. Listen, let's talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> when you were on Jim Rescue, was that was that? I, I saw a few episodes of yeah. it, but it, was that kind of behavior encouraged in any way? Or did, did someone come to you and say, "Oh, you know, this this gym owner just said this about you about the advice you just gave him"? <laughs> No, because it's a different model. Right, right. You know, there, we're, we're looking for those moments, which are the aha moment, right, the, right. the breakdown moment, you know, the, the teamwork moment. So for us, it's really about accomplishing the moment. Um, and it's not as, as much as instigated as some of these other, you know, lifestyle type shows. Right, right. But right. yeah, I mean, you know, you got to get the scene. So whatever it needs to get the scene, you, you do. You know, it just depends on what your morals are, <laughs> what your moral makeup is. Yeah. Right. 
But, you know, but it, my, seems, it seems like a reality TV show when they try to do something positive, it doesn't last. Right? <laughs> they don't make yeah. it out of the first season. Well, negativity <laughs> sells, man, because it, it, it makes yeah. the viewer feel better about their their crappy it's life that's going on. It's like, well, at least I'm not that guy. <laughs> you know. Well, also, also, some people like to see people fail because it makes them feel better about their own failures. Exactly. Like, well, at least uh, like, I'm not alone in my failing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> yeah, the human being is very strange in that way. Yes. Yeah. We either like to participate in the success or we encourage and celebrate the failures. Um, and then we also have this really interesting thing, which I, I find fascinating, is that we love to build people up and then tear them down. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's just trem- and we can't wait to do it. Like, we're yeah. just so excited. Yeah. Oh, he's almost there. Ah! And then the moment comes, everyone's like, I knew it. I knew it. I forget that yeah. guy. <laughs> no, no, no matter who it is, like when Fedor got tapped out, by Verdum. Everyone's like, oh, see, I knew he wasn't that good. I was like, oh, yeah. His time's up. See, he was overrated. It's like, really? (laughs) Same thing with Rhonda. She gets knocked out. It's like, I I knew she wasn't that great. It's like, come on. Of course, it's still the fat guy with the bar with the beer in his hand. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're like, really? (laughs) No, I know. That's right. I mean, people people kind of admire the success going up, and then there's a a larger population that loves seeing that crash. They want to be right there when they see that person crash and burn. Like the whole O.J. Simpson case, right, when we were all growing up. I mean, that was 24-hour news cycle. People couldn't get enough of that. Yeah. yeah. People pe- people now don't realize what a huge star he was then. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. that's why it was such a big deal. But th- there was a segment of the population that was just fascinated by the fact that he was in this situation. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. too. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> still is. You know, here it is 24 years later, and, you know, we're yeah. still like. We're still what? watching it going, oh. Exactly. Like the people versus OJ Simpson, like, man, couldn't wait to watch every episode. It's like, because you're reliving this part. You're, you yeah. are part of that history, some way, yeah. somehow. Somehow you had some type of event. Well, I, I always equate it to, like, look, you know, if you saw a plane crashing, you're going to feel bad about the people on the plane, but you, it's going to be hard not to look exactly. as that plane is crashing. Yeah. Because <laughs> Cause all of a sudden you know, your inner expert comes in like, well, how did it do that? Like, you know, and, and what angle did it hit? Somebody, you know, all these different things, man. You start just every time you just watch it more. You find more reasons to keep watching it over and over and over to justify why you keep looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what I used to say about fighting back when it was illegal and no one really wanted it to happen. and. And they're like, they're like, but no one's going to watch it. And I was like, sir, I, I think you're wrong there. <laughs> Listen, if a, if a fist fight breaks out, people are going to stop. Like, it's yeah. just it's human yeah. nature. You can't help yourself. You want to know what's That's going true. on. And That's the true. conflict is so personal. You know, when guy, when it's one on one and there's, you know, it's, it instantly peaks your, you know, your humanness. Yeah. You know, you know what's going on. That and is, you yeah. want to see no the result how, and you want to get invested somehow. Exactly. No matter how peaceful you are, there that violent part of you is still in you. It's, it's, the, oh, it's, it's that yin and yang. So no matter, no matter who you are, you still have that interest in that because also at the end of the day, on a good note, you know, looking at that violence, you can appreciate the peace that you can find in your life. You know, if, if, if uh, hopefully that's the one thing you can really get out of it, but it's in you. It's not, no one's like 100% zen all the freaking time. That, that, that switch is there. It's all about what can turn that switch on. You know, yeah, right. that's the one thing people need to just, you know, admit. But nobody wants to admit that. <laughs> that's why people watch there. the news. They see all this violence going on. Yes. They, there's a part of them that, you know, yeah, they may not be violent people personally, but there's a part of them like, wow. You know, people get very invested in what's going on in wars because there's a secret part, of some, so, especially so many men like, you know, I kind of wish I had joined the military so I could participate in that. 
But but then again, I don't want to get shot and die, so I'm good. I'm going to watch this <laughs> on the news. There's <laughs> always that conflict, man. Yeah, it's kind of like that visceral living experience. Yeah. And that's one of the things why MMA is so popular. And it, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a big surprise to me that it's so popular. I remember when I saw the first UFC, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. This is like Bloodsport for real. <laughs> right. And Bloodsport was one of my favorite movies growing up. I was like, this is a... You you would I mean when you're a teenager watching Bloodsport you think that's what it would actually be like you know you're like you're like yeah this looks really realistic you know? <laughs> and then you see a UFC and you're like oh wow this is this is amazing this is happening <laughs> yeah this is this is just incredible all these different because you always that, that was always a question among people at that time is like which style would prevail yep. yeah yeah I mean it changed the entire face of martial arts in this country oh and no then, doubt and then around the world and I, I was. A young, like super nerd, there with it, teaching it and and living it. And I taught people who looked at me and were like, "Mr. Shamrock, I have been teaching this wrong for twenty years." And I'd be like, "No, sir, it's <laughs> not. This is just new information." Right. <laughs> they were like, "What do I do?" I'm like, "No, no, you keep teaching. This is just new information and on the study." Um, but you know, completely taken aback. The entire country was not ready for this. Um, I think or, when you have yeah. such high-level com- combat sports going on, you're going to learn what works and doesn't work really fast. <laughs> yeah, you and know? that's what we didn't have. We yeah. didn't have a testing ground like Japan right. and right. Brazil, and it wasn't right. it wasn't real. It was imagined here and, and in movies and in, in in dojos, and but it hadn't been realized until that moment. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, before that, I mean, growing up, we would think that a fight would look like a Van Damme movie where he's yeah, throwing flying kicks and, and it never, go, never goes once. to the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> 10 guys with pipes are coming after you and you just kick one at a time. You know? <laughs> and they never go down. No matter how hard you get hit, you never go down. You're just like, right. oh, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, cool, man. We don't want to hold you up all day. But yeah, it's been a, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. It's great catching up. And uh, I love what you're doing with Shamrock Way. How can how can people support you in this endeavor? Is there a donation page? Sure. You can go to shamrockway.org, and there's a donation page, a volunteer page. There's a bunch of information about our uh, projects, our causes, and our corporation. Is fundraising the, the most important thing right now, just galvanizing all the funds to put into, put all this into action? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're walking the line of fundraising and uh, sharing our story with the public. Right. Because I think most important, I mean, this is a story that I think needs to be shared and understood. And it, to me, it's like launching a product. Yeah. Yeah. You, absolutely. you take the time, you tell the story, you brand it right, then you monetize, you know, the results. And I think, um, I'm taking all my business acumen and everything I've learned and all my Silicon Valley friends are on the board That's and great. I'm approaching it like a real business. But I, I want to do, you know, I want to raise a bunch of money and help a bunch of people build a bunch of ranches and, you know, I think this could be something that could be very valuable to our entire country. Right. So this is a model that could be duplicated anywhere in the oh, country yeah. and even around the world. Yeah, this is a scalable model that we want to sell and, you know, build. And if you want it, we'll come put one up. And, you know, to me, these are things that change the community. Now, we made a tremendous impact on the community we lived in, Susanville, California. And we can do that to any community. Yeah. So. Now you're looking to also document this in some way where it becomes possibly some kind of TV show or maybe an, even an online series? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've got a ton of offers for the show once oh, that's great. it's built. So I think we're going to build it and then just be in that position to decide what type of show we want. But speaking of the show, to me, it's going to be a show about good news. It's going to be about kids on the edge that we save, you know, yeah. and, and watch them go through the system and watch them, you know, go through the 
the learning and, you know, the realizations and, you know, go on the hike and have that, you know, mind body connection and, you know, cry a few tears and, you know, make some decisions and grow up and be men. Uh, and I think that's compelling television, especially when you see them achieve their goals and when you see the family and the community right. uh, come out to support that. Right. And we, we need more good news. You know? yeah. I like the idea of a show about good news that's going to inspire yeah. people to participate in some way. Yeah. And there'll be up, ups and downs. But, you know, and our, our company's all volunteer. So if you do want to volunteer or get involved in a charitable cause, uh, we'd welcome, love to have you. We need anyone and every skill set at this point from top to bottom. So trust me, if you uh, have an intention, a passion and a desire, we can use you. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Man. I'll definitely be following you, uh, following up with you about that. That sounds fantastic. Well, hey, man, thanks a lot. We will get this episode together and send you a link later on this week and then just really pro- proliferate it, get it out there and get as much awareness and fundraising as possible for all the great stuff you're doing. That'd be awesome, guys. I sure appreciate it. No Thank you very much, man. Right. Great talking to you. All right. Have a good one. All right. You have a good one, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. And again, that was Frank Shamrock. That was a, a really fun discussion. It's great catching up with him. And I, I love all the positive, positive things he's doing. Yeah. So I think Shamrock Way, go check that out. You know what's yeah. funny is we well, sometimes we have episodes where we talk about nutrition and stuff like that. And people yeah. are going to be like, oh, that's, there were a lot of factual mistakes there and all that. And that's all fine. It's okay to have all these great discussions on nutrition. Let's have some discussions on some real stuff, though. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Like how do we raise more awareness for Warrior Angel <clears throat> or Shamrock Way? You know, those are the kind of discussions we should really have rather than pedantic discussions about what nutrition plan is the best. Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. Which way to deadlift is going to be the best. I'm like, there's only so few okay <laughs> at this point anything else you start making up stuff you right know? how many ways can we say the same thing in different ways <laughs> you know? well, it's like what we said about the christian thibodeau episode yeah. like oh man i hope you guys get him back again <laughs> it's like you know what we're gonna wait a while because you need at least a good year to apply what he said in the last exactly episode. like i'm waiting <laughs> i'm waiting for your report on you know applying some of the things he mentioned at first and then we can move forward so, yeah. <laughs> but you know things like this like you know with um shamrockway.org and warrior angels those are things you can do right now and you can say hey man you know, I, I just, you know, I just want to let you guys know that, hey, man, I donated or I'm going, I'm putting together a fundraiser for those guys right now. See, that's immediate. That can happen right now. You don't have to sit and wait six to eight weeks, six to 12 weeks or a six month cycle, you know, and you're making a huge impact, a huge impact that goes beyond just yourself. So. Well, you know, actually on that topic, one of our listeners, and I forget his name right now, but he was inspired by the Warrior Angels episode to the point where I put him in contact with Andrew and he's going to do a fundraiser at his gym and donate the proceeds to Warrior Angels. That's awesome, man. You know, yeah. so that's just an example of what we're talking about is you can donate money yourself and then you can galvanize other people yeah. to have a group donation. And everything helps. You know, sometimes people feel, well, you know, 10 bucks is not going to help. It's like, you look, if 10% of our population donated 10 bucks to that organization, every single person, every single soldier with PTSD, probably every single person, period, with that would be able to get the help they need. Exactly, man. So it's individual contributions do make a difference because the more individuals that contribute, the larger the contributions. Funny how that works. (laughs) (laughs) What you don't want to do is just have the mentality of, oh, I wish someone would do something about that, or I don't need to do anything because someone else will do something. Exactly. Those are the two things that really impede any kind of progress in our society. Hey, man, step up, be the one. (laughs) You know, so you can say, hey, I did my part. What's up with you? So it feels so much better when you say that. Right. <laughs> you right. Know, and being the one like, oh, man, 
I, yeah, I, I wish I could be like you, dude. I wish I could have done something. Could have. Are, are you dead? I'm like, <laughs> you still have time. <laughs> I think one of the reoccurring themes that you're going to hear a lot on our show is people like Andrew, people like Frank, people that are doing a lot of good for others. They're they're taking the success they've had or they're taking personal problems and turning that into some kind of tramp to help yeah. others. Those kind of things, I like. I like talking to people like that. It's exciting. Yeah. And guess what? All of you guys out there listening, you don't have to be on the scale of Frank and, you know, or been through all the things that Andrew's been through as well to make that difference, man. Don't, don't count yourself out, dude. <laughs> and dudettes. Don't count yourself out. You know, you can still make a huge impact. Well, you know, everyone, everyone's been through something. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, no one's you know, the perfect life in, in, in this world. And we, we could say comparatively to someone who's going through suffering in the Congo or Rwanda, yeah. our problems are a joke, but there's, there's still problems. Yeah. So, like, you know, even the abuse Frank went through is bad. Is it as bad as some woman who's been raped a hundred times in the Congo? No, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't had problems. Right. So it's, it's all contextual. Yeah, but it's not a contest. Like, you know, who's got no, exactly. the most problems? It's like, it's like, exactly. it's more like, you know, who can find the most solutions and apply them that's what we should be thinking flipping that over exactly like doing with the hardships through that's really the question that matters exactly well cool man we're gonna go ahead and wrap up there i didn't get a chance to do my list of shout outs so we're just gonna have to do that next time and guess what you know you don't need your name shouted out (laughs) it's like are you really buying the products and listening to the show so you hear your name on the show of course not so you don't need to have your name shouted out (laughs) care less about that you just want to make sure the product works right i thought (laughs) and we know it does all right so yeah there we go so yeah use that coupon code lla go get 10 percent off the best nutrition supplements money can buy at mikemahler.com and how about with you man same thing at newwarriortraining.com and use that same coupon code LLA. Also, head over to patreon.com slash LLA podcast, become a monthly supporter of the show. And last but not least, head to Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, all the places that you listen to the show. And go over there, rate us, review us, share the episode, let the world know what's going on. And help us to promote great organizations like Frank's, as well as Andrew's, and the many other guests that we've had on the show in the past. Oh, man, because we're creeping up on, I believe, this week will be three years for us, man. Yeah, man. Next week, I believe, is going to be three years, as a matter of fact. So, and we're almost at one million episodes, one million downloads too. So, yeah, that's awesome. Things are growing, growing and growing. So, cool people. So, that's going to wrap it up for this week, and we'll catch you all on the next show. All right. Take care, everyone.